and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We're so glad you've joined us this morning. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, now that some people are starting to get vaccinated, there's kind of a light at the end of this COVID pandemic lockdown tunnel. And I am raring to travel and get out of Dodge, right? Yeah. (laughs) Do you guys have any places on your bucket list that you want to hit first? Honestly, probably a bar. Right? (laughs) That's that's what travel constitutes these days is, can we just go outside? Like, would that be nice? (laughs) Well, if you happen to be in search for the best rainbows on earth, you got to go to Hawaii. Okay, take me there. I buy that. Let's go. (laughs) I mean, it's not like you really need an excuse, even if you're not chasing rainbows. Hawaii is a great place to go. But if you are, scientists, according to thehill.com, have definitively noted that the best rainbows on Earth are found in Hawaii. Is is there a measurement for that? Like, how do they justify that declaration? Yeah, is it measured in, like, joy or visual? Well, there are a few units of measurement here. So, first of all, rainbows have a huge amount of cultural significance in Hawaii. Apparently, they have many terms and phrases for different types of rainbows in the native Hawaiian language. Uakoko for earth-clinging rainbows. Standing rainbow shafts are known as kahili. The barely visible rainbows are known as punakea. And moonbows Ananue Kaupo, among others. Hmm. There's another phenomenon, supernumerary bows, where faint color bows are visible within the primary bow or outside the secondary bow. These are the result of diffraction of sunlight. So it's like you get this rainbow, but then it just kind of continues almost like a repeating phase. Yeah, that was the video a couple years of the guy going like, it's a double rainbow. Oh, my God. Double (laughs) rainbow. That feels like such an innocent time in our internet virality. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. But the reason for why Hawaii is best for rainbows has to do with where it's located and the trade winds it gets. So at night, a warm sea surface will heat the atmosphere from below, while radiation to space cools cloud tops, which results in deeper rain showers in the morning that produce rainbows just in time for breakfast. Hmm. The sun's angle is also important. You want an angle of no higher than 38 degrees above the horizon and not too close to the horizon. The air is also free from a lot of dust and pollen and pollution, which means there's less scattering of light because of particles in the air. And the sunlight contains the full spectrum of light, even at low angles. That's interesting that I hadn't realized pollution could eliminate rainbows, that like you cannot get a rainbow in a smoggy sky because of the diffraction. Yeah, I guess in L.A. you can get some really spectacular sunsets due to all the pollution. Right, right. You trade one for the other. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. I've got a tangentially related article as well. So this one comes to us from fizz.org, and it's titled, Scientists Determine the Origin of Extrasolar Object Oumuamua. Oh. So in 2017, the first interstellar object from beyond our solar system was discovered via the Pan-STARRS Observatory in Hawaii. 
It was named Oumuamua, meaning scout or messenger in Hawaiian, and this object was like a comet with features that were just odd enough to defy classification. <laughs> Two Arizona State University astrophysicists, Stephen Desch and Alan Jackson, set out to explain the odd features of Oumuamua and have determined that it is likely a piece of a Pluto-like planet from another solar system. Whoa. Oh. Yeah, so Desch, who is a professor at the School of Earth and Space Exploration, said, in many ways, Oumuamua Oumuamua resembled a comet, but it was peculiar enough in several ways that mystery surrounded its nature and speculation ran rampant about what it was. Yeah, everyone's like, it's aliens. Like, that Duh. was the message. Yeah, it looks really weird. And unlike any comet we've ever seen, it's kind of just chilling and <laughs> is a little bit menacing. Yeah, aliens. But so <laughs> from observations of the object, Desh and Jackson determined several characteristics of the object that differed from what would be expected from a comet. In terms of speed, it entered the solar system at a velocity a bit lower than would be expected, indicating that it had not been traveling in interstellar space for more than a billion years or so. Oh. And yeah, I'm not totally sure what the connection is between speed and, you know, a billion years, but scientists, they've got it all figured out. <laughs> right. They tell us and we believe them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So they also observed that while the object acquired a slight push away from the sun, which is a rocket effect common in comets as sunlight vaporizes the ices they're made of, the push was actually stronger than could be accounted for. And finally, the object lacked a detectable escaping gas, which is usually depicted visibly by a comet's tail. So in all, the object was very much like a comet, but unlike any comet that had ever been observed in our solar system. Desch and Jackson then hypothesized that the object was made of different ices, and they calculated how quickly these ices would sublimate, and from there, they calculated the rocket effect, the object's mass and shape, and the reflectivity of the ices. Dash said, we realized that a chunk of ice would be much more reflective than people were assuming, which meant it could be smaller. The same rocket effect would then give Oumuamua a bigger push and bigger than comets usually experience. Desh and Jackson found one ice in particular, solid nitrogen, that provided an exact match to all of the object's features simultaneously. Huh. And since solid nitrogen ice can be seen on the surface of Pluto, it is possible that a comet-like object could be made of the same material. Hmm. Jackson, who's a research scientist and an exploration fellow at ASU, said, We knew we had hit on the right idea when we completed the calculation for what albedo, or how reflective the body is, would make the motion of Oumuamua match the observations. So they then calculated the rate at which chunks of solid nitrogen ice would have been knocked off the surfaces of Pluto and similar bodies early in our solar system's history, and they calculated the probability that chunks of solid nitrogen ice from other solar systems would reach ours. So a lot of calculation is mm -hmm. happening yeah. indirectly to get us this information. So Jackson says it was likely knocked off the surface by an impact about half a billion years ago and thrown out of its parent system. Being made of frozen nitrogen also explains the unusual shape of Oumuamua. As the outer layers of nitrogen ice evaporated, the shape of the body would have become progressively more flattened. Hmm. And then, you know, the inevitable question, could Oumuamua have been alien technology? And although <laughs> its comet-like nature was quickly recognized, the inability to immediately explain it in detail led to speculation that it's a piece of alien technology, as in the recently published book, Extraterrestrial, The First Signs of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth <laughs> uh, by Avi Loeb of Harvard University. And this has sparked a public debate about the scientific method and the responsibility of scientists not to jump to unwarranted <laughs> conclusions or book deals, ostensibly. 
even if they get a lot of money out of it, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, or even yeah. if they've been to Harvard. I mean, wasn't this basically the premise of that reboot of Ghostbusters with the all-female cast where like someone is delegitimized from their academic scholarship because of their belief in stuff? Huh. It might have been. Yeah. I didn't see it. I don't know. I do have to say, like, science is great, but they take a lot of the fun out of things. You know, like, <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, now we have this nice, neat explanation that totally justifies, yeah, it's a piece of a planet and we knew that and aren't we great, pat on the back. But also, uh, we all wanted it to be aliens, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Let us have our fun. <laughs> yeah. So here, uh, Desh is saying something which you can imagine in a very dry and unfun voice. Uh, everybody <laughs> is interested in aliens, and it was inevitable that this first object outside the solar system would make people think of aliens, but it's important in science not to jump to conclusions. Mm -hmm. It took two or three years to figure out a natural explanation, a chunk of nitrogen ice that matches everything we know about Oumuamua. That's not that long in science and far too soon to say we had exhausted all natural explanations. Jackson said, it's hoped that in a decade or so, we can acquire statistics on what sorts of objects pass through the solar system and if nitrogen ice chunks are as rare or as common as we've calculated. Either way, we should be able to learn a lot about other solar systems and whether they underwent the same sorts of collisional histories that ours did. Hmm. You know what they haven't proven, though? They haven't proven that it's not ghosts. Like Andy <laughs> said, true. you know, maybe it isn't aliens, but you could have ghosts on a Pluto-like planet in another solar system. You don't know. Yeah, and we also don't know if planets have ghosts themselves. Yeah. Maybe it's a planet ghost, you know? Yeah. Or a space ghost. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's a throwback. Yeah, I need to go watch some of that now. <laughs> yeah. Next link. Next link. All right. Well, this next one comes from Wired. It's called, Where Are Those Shoes You Ordered? Check the Ocean Floor. Oh. oh, no. <laughs> I thought you were going to say check the Suez Canal, but. Oh, Ocean yeah, that's too, true. Yeah. <laughs> that happened in between when this article was published and today. Yeah. <laughs> As you may or may not be aware, I'm sure the Suez Canal is very aware right now, overseas shipping has increased dramatically during the pandemic. While some of this is new demand for products like masks, most of it is the same consumer goods we were purchasing before, just more of them. Mm -hmm. Specifically, U.S. imports by container ship have been up about 30% compared to 2019. And that number wow. has not wow. shown any sign of going back to normal yet. But the huh. striking thing that this article focuses on is the fact that the number of lost shipping containers has skyrocketed far more than the 30% you might imagine. Ooh. So even the expected numbers here are truly mind-blowing. A standard shipping container is 8 feet high, 8 feet wide, and 20 feet long. And a full container ship will hold about 24,000 of these. Ooh. They're stacked five or six high, and they're spread out as long as four football fields. Wow. In a normal year, around 1,400 of these containers will be lost at sea, usually due to bad weather. So if we do the math, that's around 1.7 million cubic feet of consumer goods drop to the bottom of the ocean every year. Wow. Yeah. And like I said, this past year has been far worse than anyone could have guessed. In just the last five months, we've lost more than twice the annual number of shipping containers, a total of 2,980 containers in six separate incidents. These included Yikes. products from Ikea, Williams-Sonoma, Adidas, Puma, Hasbro, and lots more. Oof. So the article has a couple of reasons why we're losing so many. First off, like we said, the increased traffic of the pandemic means there's more ships out there to lose. But mm -hmm. the pandemic has also led to a shortage of the shipping containers themselves. 
They still have enough overall, but they've had some trouble getting the empty containers back to their country of origin fast enough to load them up again. So companies have resorted to using older containers, which are more likely to have damaged or corroded locking and latching mechanisms. In addition, of course, the workers are stretched thin with both the added cargo and a certain number being out sick at any given time. So they're probably not able to pack and secure the containers as well as they could if they were well rested. Mm. But on top of all that, it's been a bad year for weather at sea. And what's more, ships that are overloaded are more likely to experience something called parametric rolling. Hmm. This is a phenomenon that happens when the time between two waves happens to line up exactly with the natural rolling motion of the ship, and you get a sort of double bounce effect like on a trampoline. Mm -hmm. When this happens, the ship can suddenly tilt as much as 40 degrees to one side. Ooh, holy crap. And of course, the higher the containers are stacked, the more likely it is that some are going to fall off. Because they are secured, but we're talking about rotational physics here, where the top Mm -hmm. of the ship is like the outer rim of a wheel. So it's going to accelerate a lot faster than the containers closer to the center. And right Mm. now, we honestly don't even have a way of securing something that heavy moving that fast. That's not to say it's not possible, but redesigning the ships and training the crew on how to interrupt the ship's rolling motion, of course, takes time and money. Mm -hmm. And up until now, the amount of merchandise lost each year was basically the cheaper choice. Mm -hmm. But given what we've seen this year... The International Maritime Organization, which is in charge of creating seaworthiness standards for all countries, has been considering the issue. Mm. Yeah, I mean, everyone's losing a huge amount of money. The only kind of comfort we can get during lockdown is whatever retail therapy those who can't afford it can. That's right. (laughs) If my shoes aren't coming, I'm mad. Fix the oceans. Like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Well, and there's even more money at play. Michael Hurd, the director of the Cargo Casualty Department at a marine insurance company, noted that some of this year's cases will likely lead to lawsuits. He declined (laughs) to comment further, but... (laughs) (laughs) They're already in the works. That's right. When there's liability involved, all of a sudden people start caring about security measures. Yep. And in the meantime, a spokesman for one of the affected companies said, if anybody has investments in deep sea salvage, there's some beautiful product down there. (laughs) 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 Next link. Next link. So deep fakes, right? They're not really going anywhere. And in fact, they're getting a little bit better and better. However, (laughs) newatlas.com is telling us that a new computer tool is better able to spot deep fakes with technology that basically looks at tiny reflections in the eyes. Oh. Yeah. So as we all know, deep fakes are artificial media that are created by training deep learning algorithms on real photo or video footage of a person. And then they mix that with computer imagery to create fictional photo or video footage of them instead. They've obviously become more realistic from entertainment applications like a doctored video of a Game of Thrones character, Jon Snow, apologizing for the show's ending. <laughs> or or in Speaker Nancy Pelosi's case, a video that was altered to make her appear to stumble over her words, which was subsequently tweeted by former President mm-hmm. Donald Trump to millions of followers. So the research by the University of Buffalo team was spearheaded by computer scientist Si Wei Liu, who sought to develop a new deepfake detection tool by leveraging tiny deviations in the reflections of the eyes. And the way this works is that when we look at something in real life, its reflection appears in both of our eyes as the same shape and color. And that's because the cornea is almost like a perfect semisphere and it's very reflective. So anything that is coming to the eye with a light emitting from those sources will have an image on the cornea. And the two eyes should have very similar reflective patterns because they're seeing the same thing. 
Leo and his team built a computer tool that looks at mapping the face, examining the eyes, then the eyeballs, and then the light reflected in each eyeball. The tool then compares differences in the shape, light, and intensity of the reflected light. So when they were testing this, they used a combination of real portraits and deepfakes, and the team found it was able to distinguish the latter with 94% effectiveness, which is pretty dang good. Yeah. Of course, there are still several limitations to the approach, namely that these deviations could be fixed with editing software. Yeah, yeah that seems like a really small detail to fix if you know that that's something you need to fix. Exactly. So with the announcement of this new tool, I'm sure those who are invested in creating deepfakes are like, okay. Okay, here's another to-do we need to add in the creation and training of our computer algorithms. (laughs) But it's still a step in the right direction. Yeah. I have a very strange factoid in my brain about those things. So like in portraiture, photographers who do them is a name for them. They're called catchlights. And they will sometimes, like if they're being super artsy about it, they'll decide what kind of catchlights they want this portrait to have. So like they'll put a shaped light right in front of you to get a particular reflection in your eye. And what? yeah, and in Stephen Colbert's book, I Am America and So Can You, I think, something like that, there's mm-hmm. a big picture of him on the front. And his artists who, like, you know, went and touched up that photo and whatever, the catch lights in his eyes are little tiny eagles. And, like, <laughs> it's a really subtle detail that, like, people didn't notice for a long time. And when they did, they're like, oh my God, like, they totally <laughs> went all in on this portraiture for him. That's almost like a little Easter egg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it proves they're 100% editable. Like, you can absolutely mm. put whatever catch light you want in there. So I feel like this is a short term thing. Maybe, <laughs> or it becomes sort of like a new way for artists, especially digital artists, to kind of imprint their signature. You yeah. know, like the way that old oil paintings would kind of hide the signature and sheaths of grass or a thatched roof or whatever. Maybe now it'll be like we'll have artist reflection eye signatures. Yeah. Why not? Way better than a watermark at the very least. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. So speaking of photos of celebrities, this article comes to us from DW.com and it's titled The Story Behind Albert Einstein's Most Iconic Photo. Hmm. You've probably seen this one. Tongue uh, out. Yeah. I know what you're yeah, talking yeah, it's about. The waggy tongue wong. So uh, <laughs> it was March 14th, 1951, the day that Albert Einstein turned 72. Hmm. And the famous physicist who was born in Ulm, Germany, had already been living in the U.S. for many years. At the time, he was working at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. A birthday celebration was being held in his honor at the research center. So the paparazzi was lurking around the venue outside when he left, hoping to hear one of the world-famous professor's witty quips about the global political situation and to take the perfect birthday photo. But not a fan of media hype and growing weary of being a spokesperson, Einstein was annoyed by their presence, and yet there he was, stuck in the back of a limo sandwiched between the Institute's former director, Frank A. Deloitte, and his wife, Marie, unable to escape the flashing bulbs. And enough is enough, he is said to have repeatedly shouted at the pushy reporters, and in a gesture of annoyance, the unconventional free spirit stuck his tongue out at his pursuers, a moment that was captured by photographer Arthur Sass. The picture quickly circulated around the world, becoming an iconic image. Yeah. But it wasn't actually the photographer who helped the photo achieve worldwide fame, but Einstein himself. Hmm. (gasps) He ordered numerous prints and cropped it so that the Adeloit couple could no longer be seen. (laughs) 
<laughs> he sent dozens of the photos to colleagues, friends, and acquaintances, and he wrote to his friend Joanna Fantova, the outstretched tongue reflects my political views. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. In 2009, an original signed copy was sold for $74,324 at auction, making it the most expensive photo of the genius ever. So, you know, Einstein was really one of the first NFT artists. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, three headshots. How are you going to turn that down? If someone takes a really nice picture of me, you bet I'm going to use it. Yeah, absolutely. And then I'm going to resell it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize that that was a paparazzi photo. Not only that, taken by a photographer whose last name was Sass. Right, right. Come on. (laughs) I mean, it is S-A-S-S-E, so it might be like Sassy, which would be even better. Nope, that doesn't work for my narrative. (laughs) (laughs) Mm-mm. It's sass. Or or yeah. he was a sassy photographer. Yeah, okay, there you that's go. allowable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so Einstein, who was Jewish, had fled Nazi Germany and knew what it felt like to be the subject of a government-led witch hunt. Thus, he did not condone the Cold War and the search for alleged communists instigated by Senator Joseph McCarthy, in which many politicians, intellectuals, and artists were accused of being un-American. And Einstein had a lot to say about such human stupidity. The ruling of the dumb people can't be overcome (laughs) because there are so many of them, and their voice counts as much as ours, reads an Einstein quote translated from German. Two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity, but I'm not quite sure about the universe yet. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It makes you wonder, like, why are more physicists not photographed with their tongues out? Mm -hmm. Like, this seems to be a good PR move. We probably just need, like, a section of the paparazzi that doesn't focus only on celebrities and politicians. Right. The the right people should be celebrities. Let's get some more fame into the There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's pretty uncommon, though, to have a influential and charismatic scientists. I guess I can only really think of four, Mm -hmm. which would be Bill Nye, Sagan, Einstein, and Feynman would probably be the the top four like really chatty ones. Yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson's Uh, made a pretty big career out of it. Yeah, but you know, like he's intentionally annoying. Right. I don't know. I don't know. I kind of put Bill Nye in that category myself. Oh, Bill Nye's changed a little bit. You know, he he understands what's required to succeed in the world we live in. So like, (laughs) I don't hate. I'm just saying it's intentional. But you know what did that to him, right? It was the paparazzi. Like the fame is what turned him. Oh, wow. So we can't. We have to protect our scientists from the paparazzi is apparently. It's a vicious cycle. You know, it's the paparazzi scientist industrial complex. (laughs) All right. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, it's time once again for our favorite drug to talk about here (gasps) at Damn Interesting Week. LSD. Yes. There has been some progress in the movement to use LSD as a therapeutic treatment for mental illness in the U.S. Ooh. Yeah. So Ezra Klein at the New York Times has the story about how Governor Kate Brown of Oregon just announced this week the members of the state's newly formed psilocybin advisory board. Obviously, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Obviously, they're the first state in the country to try something like this. And what's especially interesting is they're taking a fully therapeutic approach. It's not legalization and it's not medicalization where a doctor writes you a prescription for a specific illness and then you take it. Instead, Mm -hmm. Oregon is looking to create a support structure of trained therapists who administer the dose in a controlled environment and then guide you through a therapy session so you can avoid a bad trip and hopefully come away with some emotional breakthroughs. Yes, please. Yeah. 
If what they're envisioning comes to pass, you won't even need a formal diagnosis to access this treatment. Anybody will be able to walk in and sign up for therapy just like you can with a regular therapist right now. Huh. So all of this has been made possible by Measure 109, the Oregon Psilocybin Services Act, which was approved by voters as a ballot measure this past November. Measure 109 was largely the brainchild of Tom and Sherry Eckert, who share a therapy practice in Portland, and they say there's actually a significant but mostly forgotten history of professionals using LSD therapeutically in the 1940s and 50s before its recreational heyday in the 60s. And Mm -hmm. in fact, Bill Wilson, who was one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, was always very open about the fact that he'd given up drinking with the aid of belladonna, which is a similar hallucinogenic plant, And he Mm. considered bringing LSD-assisted therapy into the program of AA in the 1950s. Whoa. Yeah. But he backed off the idea after he was met with disapproval from his board. Basically, once the hippies got a hold of it and there were reports of bad trips, everybody sort of turned (laughs) against it, right? And research ground to a halt. But the truth is psilocybin is not addictive and there is no known lethal dose. The only way it really hurts you is if you do something stupid while you're high— which theoretically won't be possible under this treatment model. The therapeutic centers will have screening for certain psychological and physical conditions that could lead to a bad trip, and they'll have medical help on site for anyone who does fall into a crisis. As for how successful it is, the stats are almost unbelievable. So one recent study published in JAMA Psychiatry found that more than half of patients suffering from major depression were in full remission after just two treatments of LSD plus psychotherapy. Yeah. Whoa. A study on tobacco addiction out of Johns Hopkins found that two thirds of the participants were still tobacco free a year after their treatment. And these were patients who had been selected in particular because other methods of quitting had repeatedly failed them. Wow. Yeah. The researchers noted that even if further studies show that these were outliers and psilocybin is only half as effective as we think it is, that still makes it more effective than literally anything else we have for a number of medical problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's hard to say for sure why LSD has these transformative powers, but what it looks like on an MRI is that your whole brain is lighting up at once and basically having conversations between neurons that normally wouldn't talk to each other. So that's what accounts for the synesthesia that people often experience during trips, like tasting colors, right? Mm. But it also allows for these emotional connections that the person themselves has sort of willfully walled off. So most Mm -hmm. addicts, when they go through their LSD therapy, they report coming out of the trip with a suddenly clear understanding of why they're addicted, such as they have to face a childhood trauma or they realize that they hate their job, even though they've convinced themselves that they have to like it because it pays so well. And they still have to do the work of choosing to change their behavior afterwards. But it's much easier once you have this kind of forced insight into your own Mm -hmm. mind. I mean, it's basically years of traditional therapy crammed into a single hour. It's highly yeah. efficient is what it is. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's amazing. And proponents are adamant that the initiative has to be rolled out very slowly and carefully so that public opinion doesn't turn on LSD again and undo years of research and advocacy, right? Sure. Yeah. LSD also remains illegal at the federal level, and no one's really sure how that's going to play out. In the early mm-hmm. days of cannabis legalization, the feds would occasionally raid dispensaries that were fully legal at the state level. And no one could do anything about it. They're like, we're the feds. Mm -hmm. You're illegal to us. Give us all your stuff. Mm -hmm. But they're hoping if they do it right, the feds will wait to see the results before jumping in to assert their authority. 
And, you know, of course, this is happening in Oregon. It's not surprising that (laughs) this is not happening in, you know, a very conservative state. Todd Corthuis, an addiction specialist at Oregon Health and Science University, noted Oregon has always been a pioneer state. (laughs) They're they're proud to be at the forefront of this. And, you know, more power to them. I hope it works. Yeah, Yeah, it's almost kind of like what I hear from people who have ayahuasca trip reports, you Mm -hmm. know, where they're basically it's kind of a last ditch therapy effort. But that's usually accompanied with a lot of like forceful excretion of bodily fluids and you're in a group setting. And so you can't really account or control for the other people who are going through their own massive psychological experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they talked a little bit about ayahuasca in there and the guy was basically like, no, shrooms are way better, man. This ayahuasca crap is no good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I certainly would not recommend uh, ayahuasca based on accounts I've heard from friends who've done it right (laughs) it sounds very very intense and it can go wrong from a therapeutic standpoint Mm -hmm. yeah um, yeah it sounds like it has just more toxicity involved as opposed to like a synthetic and supposedly purified or refined form of a drug like lsd could be in a therapeutic setting right yeah i mean i've heard too many instances of people on ayahuasca who like literally believed they were dying and like falling apart and stuff like that which is you know it's a very powerful spiritual experience, I guess. Yeah. But maybe not the right thing. <laughs> well, for... and they do know, like, LSD definitely has the potential for some of those bad trips. It's really yeah. key that you have to be in a supportive, caring environment where they're going to guide you through the conversations yeah. that you're having and what you're thinking about. You know, they don't want you going inward and getting worse because it can be traumatic yeah. if it's not. Oh, yeah. Supported. You always want to have a good sitter. You don't want to have someone who's pretending to put out unlit cigarettes on your arm. <laughs> Hoping it freaks you out, you know? Yeah, that would be a bad thing. (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, my understanding of ayahuasca is that nobody is in control in that situation. You can only really be guided through the experience. But like, Mm -hmm. at least you can do some setup with these other drugs, I guess. Yeah. Not speaking from experience. (laughs) (laughs) None of us are. Pure speculation all around. Yeah, but soon it could be. If they get this going in Oregon, all you got to do is fly there and walk in and be like, hey, I'm, uh, I'm here for my therapy session. Okay, I'm going to fly to Oregon, hit the bar, and then go to the right, clinic. Right, right. That's Perfect. your first I vacation. Mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> domestic medical tourism. I think Oregon is ready. <laughs> We're buying our it places. honestly doesn't sound so bad when you put it like that. <laughs> domestic <laughs> medical tourism. That's right. Oregon's a nice place. They got trees. It's pretty out there. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, Gizmodo is telling us that NASA's nearly indestructible airless titanium tires might soon be available for your bicycle. Ooh. Whoa. Like, right? Are these like on the rovers, like on Mars, and they could be on our bikes? Yep. <laughs> so, um, for example, the lunar rover, which Apollo 15 brought to the moon, wheels made of hollow metal springs were created so they could absorb bumps to make the ride more comfortable for astronauts. The problem was most metals lose their shape over time and they become brittle when they're repeatedly flexed, which results in misshapen wheels that just don't roll as well and sometimes even worse, create severe damage that prevents them from rolling at all. So they needed to kind of have a optimization layer applied to this, right? Mm -hmm. So as an alternative, they have spent several million dollars over the past seven years developing something called nitinol. Hmm. It's a metal alloy that's made out of nickel and titanium that behaves a little differently. So metal springs will eventually lose their ability to spring back to their original shape because the bonds between their atomic structures become so stretched 
they're no longer able to return to their initial arrangements. But nitinol features a more ordered atomic structure and exhibits something known as the shape memory effect, which allows it to be deformed but return to its original manufactured shape again and again without the possibility of a flat tire occurring. It's incredible technology that will soon be available in the coming years for a vehicle that will probably never leave Earth's atmosphere. Your bike. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) hopefully. (laughs) I mean, you know, who knows? Elon Musk may have something to say about that, but he has something to say about everything. Yeah, Uh, he he shot a car. He can shoot a bike. Why not? Uh, Anyway, (laughs) a startup called the Smart Tire Company has announced that it's creating a metal bicycle tire using NASA's nitinol alloy that will probably survive a lot longer than the bike itself. Hmm. They're calling it the METAL, which stands for Martensite Elastized Tubular Loading Tire. (laughs) (laughs) And the creators are hopeful it will be available as an alternative to premium bike tire options as early as 2022. Hmm. Optimistic. But it does remain to be seen just how much a titanium alloy bike tire will cost. (laughs) But for cyclists who are serious and are happy to spend tens of thousands of dollars on their bikes, which they are there, they they exist. These tires could be the last set they'll ever have to buy. You know, they'll still require regular maintenance, but quite the selling point. These tires are not also going to be suitable for every rider because, you know, they're made of metal. And so they're going to be heavier than premium lightweight tires used by professional cyclists and athletes. But for other applications like people who like doing off-road mountain biking, which, you know, those tires are already chunkier and heavier, Mm -hmm. the tires won't feel that much different. Well, and the last thing you want if you're out in the middle of the woods mountain biking is to pop a tire. And then you can't get any, you know, you're not carrying a spare on your back. So that seems like the ideal application right there. Obviously, NASA felt it was important enough to spend millions of dollars on its development. Yeah, I feel like this is going to give rise to a whole new wave of bike jacking crimes. Like when the bike is that expensive, you don't even have to steal. No one is going to lock this thing up outside at the bike rack. But you could basically just force somebody off their very expensive bike and ride away with it and get yourself a $20,000 or whatever prize. I mean, it. it, Darn. I don't know. I'd be afraid to ride one around myself. Well, you've got some time to come to terms with that That's or true. find your peace or <laughs> who knows what kind of anti-theft technology they may build into it by That's then. That's true. Maybe it'll have like like one of those collar matching things where like they need your RFID to operate. So you, yep. yeah, just spitballing here. Feel free to call me. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer is available for consultation. That's right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from discovermagazine.com, and it's titled, Earth Has Been Hiding a Fifth Layer in Its Inner Core. Oh. So, yeah, one of geology's basic principles is that the Earth is made up of four layers, the crust, the mantle, the outer core, and then the inner core, but this may be squashed in light of a new study that suggests Earth actually has a distinct fifth layer that's been under our feet all along. Researchers at the Australian National University, or ANU, say that the new layer they uncovered is located within Earth's inner core. Oh. So yeah, it's not like we totally missed a part of the planet, you know, like we were going halfway down there, and then we just missed layer three in the middle. Right. It's, it's even deeper. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like a separation of the, the core. Right, it's like uh, core, itself. but slightly different. Exactly, yeah. It's it's inner, and then inner, inner core. Right. But So approximately 4.6 billion years ago, the Earth formed, in case you weren't aware, <laughs> Uh, The story starts with the planet's interior or rocky core, which formed through the collision of heavy elements. 
The core found at the center of the Earth is made up of two parts. Uh, there's the outer layer comprised of a liquid iron alloy, and it's about 1,355 miles thick. Ow. In contrast, the inner core is made up of a solid iron alloy with a radius of 760 miles. And the inner core is also thought to be responsible for Earth's magnetic field. Mm. Then comes the mantle, which sits directly above the core. This layer is composed of mostly silicate rocks that are rich in magnesium and iron, has a thickness of about 1,793 miles, making it Earth's thickest layer, and then the thinnest and most brittle layer is the crust. It varies between 18.6 to 43.5 miles in thickness and forms the outermost layer of our home planet. So anytime you're walking around, you are walking on crust. Right. Uh, the <laughs> scientists have long suspected that Earth's inner core was made of two layers, and you will recall from just a minute ago that the inner core consists of solid iron alloy, which is due Due to high pressure deep within the earth that stops the iron alloy from melting. But distinct structural changes were detected in this iron alloy that set apart the newly discovered innermost layer from the rest of the inner core. And according to Salon, this discovery led the researchers to believe that the change in structure may have been caused by a unknown dramatic event early in Earth's history, and further examination may provide additional details around how our planets formed. Hmm. The study's lead author and researcher, Joanne Stevenson, in a statement said, Seismic monitoring allows us to gain a better understanding of the Earth's interior, which is how we discover this, I believe, and it's made possible by measuring sound waves that are created by earthquakes and past through Earth's layers. So they were essentially measuring the waves that came off of these layers of core. They didn't, you know, do a huge multi-thousand mile drill all the way right. down there, although that would mm -hmm. be cool. Might crack our <laughs> planet, turn us into Oumuamua 2.0, bring it around. Um, so the recent discovery was made with the aid of a special search algorithm that researchers used to compare thousands of models of the inner core with decades worth of data on how long seismic waves take to travel through Earth. Although this work is still being analyzed, the discovery of this new layer may pave the way for a new geological principle and prompt textbooks themselves to be rewritten. <laughs> I don't know. The textbooks often seem to be pretty out of date. Like, that seems like <laughs> low on their yeah. priority list to fix that piece of yeah. information. Yeah. And that's I mean, assuming that the people in charge of putting the textbooks and accepting updated ones are actually going to believe in science, especially new science. Mm -hmm. So that's, optimistic. That's right. They could be hollow earth proponents. Have you guys heard about that oh. theory? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I have... I've heard of it. I haven't researched it. Yeah, I wouldn't. It's not. It <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of cool, you know, conceptually, like you can just chill inside the earth, but it seems tedious to get down there. Oh, yeah. No, and... part of their theory is like there's a whole civilization down there that they're hiding from us. So like, uh, oh, you know, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's, it freely admit it's more fun than the flat earth theory, but <laughs> it's still uh, absolute nonsense, obviously. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of an idea I had for a book one time when I was like 19. Right. Or something. Right. Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, so I have a, a quick one here at the end. This is called Physicists Discovered the Elusive Otteron First Predicted 50 Years Ago. And, hmm. you know, it's not often that we discover a new particle in science. And unfortunately, we haven't really done it here either. But it's kind of cool, nonetheless. Basically, an otteron is the name for a little bundle of gluons that gets exchanged when either two protons or a proton and its antimatter twin, the antiproton, collide violently but aren't destroyed. 
So gluons are subatomic particles that are so named because they glue together other particles called quarks. And quarks are the tiny things that make up the bigger particles like protons and neutrons that form the atoms that we all know and love. So it goes quarks, gluons, protons, atoms, right? Got it. <laughs> okay. So gluons are weird because they don't like to be alone. You almost always find them clumped together in groups. And moreover, you almost always, up until now, found them clumped in even numbers. When an mm -hmm. even number of gluons are stuck together, it's called a pomeron. And physicists have believed since the 1970s that an odd-numbered grouping should exist, which they called otterons. But for reasons we don't <laughs> understand, they are exceedingly rare to the point that we've only just now proved they exist. And I have huh. to agree. I don't know why they call them pomerons and not even neurons. Like, it seems like you would want that kind of parallelism, but... Mm -hmm. The main problem, of course, is that the physicists at CERN and other particle accelerators can't just create one and look at it. Instead, they have to collide pairs of protons again and again, as well as pairs of protons and antiprotons, and then look at the ricochet patterns on the accelerator's walls to determine how the two particles interacted at the moment of impact. And after millions and millions of collisions, certain patterns have started to emerge that could only be possible if the otteron exists. And they say they now have enough data to reach five sigma certainty or a greater than 99.999% chance that otterons have to exist. Huh. Yeah. And they have one of those fun little statistics about how much data they had to collect to get to this level of statistical probability. One of the researchers noted that if you burned it onto CDs and stacked them up, they'd reach farther than the distance to the moon. And I was kind of like, Whoa. oh, that's quaint, because who burns data onto CDs anymore? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the discovery itself was actually confirmed during lockdown with data that was taken beforehand. So they haven't been able to celebrate this discovery in person yet. They insist mm. that it's a really big deal and they're going to have a party as soon as they can. But on the <laughs> other hand, when asked for the implications of what the Otteron's existence might mean, they couldn't actually say. Co-author Christoph Royon simply pointed out that in physics, when you find something new, usually it's a door which opens completely new domains. So they don't know. They're just kind of like, hey, there's this thing now. It might prove something, just like the core of the Earth. We don't know. Yeah. Well, that's just sort of how cutting-edge physics operates, right? Yeah. yeah. And it feels like they're having a lot of fun with the names, at least. They've got five oh, sigma yeah. certainty on otterons and pomerons, and, you know. <laughs> yeah, we were thinking about getting a new dog, and a pomeron was at the top of our list. <laughs> I just have one question about the CDs. Were they the eight-centimeter CDs? or the 12 centimeter CDs because <laughs> that makes a difference. That's right. Video discs can hold a lot more data. Like those are old yeah. school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or is it a DVD-R, you know? That's like... true. This is highly unspecific. That's not like physicists to be unspecific yeah. about these sort of things. <laughs> I'm disappointed for one. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include... The secret auction that set off the race for AI supremacy, the ancient fabric that no one knows how to make, and how Mrs. Edge saved the birds. So all that and more can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you're a new listener and you noticed a conspicuous lack of ads that wasn't an accident, Damn Interesting has always been and always will be an ad-free experience. If that's an attitude and an experience you like, we'd appreciate your support at Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. You can also email us with any thoughts you have at feedback at di.show. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.